Hi, I'm Paul Greenberg, author of the New York Times bestseller Four Fish and American Catch. And I'm Nick Mink, co-founder of the direct-to-consumer seafood company Sitka Salmon Shares. And what do we have in common, Paul? We like fish. That's right. And Paul and I have partnered to bring you an eight-episode series called Fish Talk. Each episode, Paul and I will trade off as hosts to take you on a journey from our coast to our kitchens so that we can better understand how fish get to our plates. So, Paul, what should listeners expect from upcoming episodes? Well, Nick, let's face it. For non-fishy people, fish are confusing. They're confusing to cook. They're confusing to clean. What's wild? What's farmed? All these different choices you have to make if you're going to eat fish in a responsible way. So on this podcast, we're going to talk to conservationists, scientists, chefs. At the end of each episode of Fish Talk, you will be a little less confused about fish. I couldn't agree more, Paul. All right, let's dive in. What is it? Well, the guy at the gates, they, they said they got a package. Yeah. Well, if the striped bass were ever to get a part in a movie, it'd probably be in The Godfather. Striped bass are the yeah. ultimate tough guy New York fish. They're big, brawny. They eat everything. And I mean, they spawn in the Hudson River, for Christ's sake, a place where back in the day, a guy could end up wearing cement boots, if you know what I'm saying. And when I think about all the tough guys out of Brooklyn I fished for striped bass with over the years, the savvy Italians and Russians who taught me so much about how to catch things, I think about how those guys are all caught up in this fish's fate, a fate that just might get this fish rubbed out entirely. What the hell is this? That's a Sicilian message. It means Luca Brasi sleeps with the fishes. See, just like Luca Brasi and the Godfather, the striped bass has a price on its head. In fact, they're probably the most wanted fish in the East. Millions of sport fishermen chase them all around the waters of New York and all over the East Coast. At the same time, commercial fishermen are after them too. So there's this kind of war going on between the wreck guys and the guys who are just trying to make a buck selling them. This 100-year war has been bad for the bass. At one point, they were so overfished, they almost made the endangered species list. Me have always been on the side of the sport fishermen, but making this episode kind of changed all that. Because you see... The striped bass story, like The Godfather, has a lot of unexpected twists and turns, which is what we're going to talk about on Fish Talk. So to kick this episode off, I went out fishing with a captain out of Queens named Vinny Calabro. Me and Vinny, we caught a couple of stripers. We filleted them up. I ate the fillets. But I felt this fish was so valuable that I didn't want to waste any of it. So I saved the heads. And I mailed one of those heads, Godfather style, to my co-host Nick Mink. The only problem was my Sicilian message almost got lost in the mail. Hey, Nick. So listen, I had this concept for this episode that I was going to mail you this head, but something happened, right? Yeah. So we wanted to get this fish head to Montana. And I got a text last night from our producer saying, the fish head is stuck in Great Falls. I'm like, okay, maybe what I could do is I could drive over to the FedEx location and go get this head. And this was supposed to be guaranteed by 8 p.m. last night, and yeah. it only made it to Great Falls. So the story of the Godfather would have to evolve to take into account our, our modern third-party global right. distribution system. So I can imagine, right? It's like, uh, yes, FedEx, come in. Listen, you people made a promise. You were supposed to deliver a package for me. <laughs> And uh, unfortunately, the recipient didn't receive it by a certain time. So who's going to pay for this? Well, um, sir, you can fill out a complaint form and we'll look into a repo. No, no, I don't want to do any paperwork. I don't sign anything. We got to talk here. 
And then the door closes and then da 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 But hey, you know what? It was really great. It worked. It did work. And after Nick and I finally got our heads in place, we got down to business with one of my favorite fish cooks, the New York-based chef, Dave Pasternak. Dave Pasternak, I'm a chef by trade. I'm a fisherman by love and heart. Was your biggest restaurant Esca in the theater district? Yeah, I mean, Esca was 21 years. Unbelievable. What was the initial concept of Esca? I mean, it's in the theater district. Was that part of the whole conception of it? Or did you always come at it as, I'm a fisherman who's going to open up a fish restaurant? Yeah, I mean, originally I was going to call it Rascas, like the small little bony fish that's important in all the Mediterranean cultures, you know, Bowie Bay, Zupa de Pesh, Frito Misto, Crudo. Right. Now, tell me a little bit about your background. It seems like you come out of like an Italian cooking tradition. Was your mom Italian or was she Russian? No, no, it was all Russian. What was like a a standard meal that your mom would put on the table? You know, it could be anywhere from pot roast to meatloaf to flounders we just caught, fish cakes out of blackfish that we just caught, you know, anything. My mom was an excellent cook. Meatloaf and uh, pot roast, you're you're talking my Midwestern style now. (laughs) Excellent. So tell me a little bit about your fishing growing up. You know, I would fish with my dad. We'd go on to the party boats and we'd fish off people's docks and piers. And I got into it. I started renting skiffs and I made friends with people with boats and then I bought my own boat. So forgive me, I'm a fish guy, but my fish knowledge is in the North Pacific. And so what is it about striped bass in the Northeast? Is it is it the fight? Is it the flavor? I mean, you could tell a guy... Hey, I caught a 400-pound bluefin, and I go, oh, wow, that's cool. And you can tell them, wow, I caught a 50-pound striped bass, and their eyes will pop open. Wow. Well, you know, so the fish that we have today, I caught with Vinny Calabro out of uh, Howard Beach. You know Vinny, right? Do I know Vinny? Of course I know Vinny. (laughs) (laughs) How many times have you fished with Vinny over the years? Many, 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 many times. He's kind of a striped bass genius, don't you find? Yeah, he's like the godfather of striped bass. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, you know, speaking of Vinny Calabro, let's go to our recipe now. I thought it was pretty fitting that in your list of ingredients, you have Calabrian chilies. So I assume that Calabrian chilies and Vinny Calabro came from the same place. One of the reasons I decided that we should cook ahead together is because there's so much controversy around striped bass about who should eat them and if they even should be eating. I bet you that so many of these striped bass heads get thrown away. So let's talk about a striped bass head. Are fish heads good to eat? Fish heads are great to eat, yeah. There's a lot of meat. You know, the key, though, is that you, you have to really make sure you scale it good. You know, the striped bass has very large scales. Mm, okay. All right. Do we have to get literally get every scale off this head? No, but you should try and get as many as you can. Just because it's sort of unpleasant to find a, a, a scale in your fish head stew, I assume. Yes. It's like the size of your thumbnail. Yeah. I've got a little sound of the scaling into the microphone. The microphone may never be the same. Nick, how are you making out over there? Really positive nude. The fish head has arrived cold. I'm going to start the scaling process as well. So Dave, while Nick is doing this, what are the steps involved here? So is the head whole or is the head split in half? The head is whole. I was hoping to split it in half with you. The next main step would be to split it in half. I have a cleaver here, so I'm just going to basically... Hit it under the chin. Yep. Because we would kind of like to split that spinal column, right? So that the marrow gets out, right? Yeah, yeah. If you can. If not, it will 
break up at some point anyway. Okay, hold on. I'm going to tilt my microphone down just to get the sound of this. Hold on one sec. Uh, I mean, this thing is. <laughs> did you get it? Uh, did you get it, Paul? I'm having flashbacks back to the lobster episode here. Yeah, I always make you work for your money. <laughs> Everything I do is really simple, and and I find myself doing a lot more butchery than maybe I'd like on Paul's episodes. <laughs> yeah, what's notable about a striped bass is it's really like heavily boned. This is like a a seriously physical animal, right, Dave? Oh yeah, it's super strong. All right, Nick, I don't know about you, but I've got my two halves of striped bass right here. <laughs> Would you guys look down on me, two striped bass aficionados from New York, if I just left my head whole? Well, you know, Nick, as long as you promise to eat your head whole, I will let you do it, but I'm going to follow Chef Dave. So you could stand back a little bit while Chef Dave walks me through this. Okay, I will. The next process is you're going to put like a good amount of olive oil in the bottom of your pan. We're gonna brown our garlic just lightly till it gets a little color and it gets soft, the whole cloves. Okay, and how much olive oil am I putting in the pan? You want a nice puddle on the bottom of the pan so the garlic cloves sit in it. All right, so I'm firing it up. Now, am I putting this on like a low flame? You want on a low flame. You want the garlic to cook slowly. Okay, great. Then you're gonna add your Calabrian chilies. And I'm putting the chilies in whole, right? Yes. If you want it like mild spice, put two, three. If you want a little bit spicier, you put four or five. I like it spicy, so I'm going to do four or five. So full confession, even though I went over to Italy, they did not have Calabrian chili. What's special about a Calabrian chili? In Calabria, they grow these small little red chilies that they fry in olive oil, and they are just so flavorful. They're way beyond being spicy. You know, I was introduced to Calabrian chilies maybe 18 months ago, and I just keep them in my cupboard for everything because, Dave, as you pointed out, they're so much, they're, they're almost citrusy. They add a depth of flavor to all the food that's really remarkable. Yes. It's my feeling that once they do this kind of salt and olive oil treatment, they almost taste fermented. Is some of the appeal from a little fermentation process? Definitely a little fermentation. Absolutely. I'm having major Calabrian chili envy. I might have a split fish head, but I have shallow chilies. So yeah. once again, we have differences. All right, so I got my chilies cooking. What's next? We're going to add our tomatoes next. If you're using the plums, I would use like six pieces cut up. And if I'm using it from a can, same thing? Same thing, yeah. Just And those you're going to crush by hand right into the pot. You're going to let those break up a little bit and cook for, you know, a couple of minutes, four or five minutes. Before you add your head, you're going to season it. Okay, with what? Salt and pepper. So like a pinch of pepper, pinch of salt? Yep, you're gonna add your bay leaf. Okay, and now I've got some fresh bay leaves. Is that preferable to the dried? That's all I ever use. All right, good. Yeah, it does smell very nice. All right, so putting that in. And then you're gonna add your white wine. And I got a Pinot Grigio here, is that good? Perfect. You want dry white wine, you don't want sweet white wine. Right. All right, so, and should we turn the flame up a little bit when we put the wine in? Turn the flame up a little bit, and now we're going to cover the pot. Everything's in except for the squash and the fennel. Oh, okay, so I'm going to put the fish head in. And should I put the fish end skin side up or skin side down? You're going to put the cut side down. Okay, done. Now you're going to cover the pot. All right, I'm covering. So it's cooking now. How long should this be cooking for? You know, it's going to take a few minutes, but once it starts to cook and break up a little bit, then we're going to add our diced fennel and our squash. So while that's all happening, I'm going to talk to a few different people about striped bass, where they come from, 
What's at risk? What should we do? And after all that, we'll come back. We'll finish this baby up and taste it and see how it all goes. Sound good? Sounds good. Sounds great, Paul. It was a brutal business, splitting that head, getting all up into that big animal that I was wrestling into the pot. But it made me want to know more about this fish. And it turns out when you look into the fish's history, had things gone another way, we could have lost the striped bass entirely. To get that whole striped bass story, I asked the ecologist Carl Safina, a guy who truly loves fish as animals, but who also loves to catch and eat fish. I asked him to walk me through the rise, fall, rise, fall, and refall of stripers that's happened over the last 50 years. I'm Carl Safina. I'm an ecologist, author, lifelong fisherman, and a former fisheries manager, as well as a longtime fisheries and fish advocate. I'm talking to you from the east end of Long Island. You were born in Brooklyn, right, in New York. Tell me a little bit about what it was like when you first got to Long Island. We moved one day when I was 10 years old. It was a little freeing. I really was anticipating the move to a place that had what was called grass and things called birds. I had been pleading for a dog and my parents' standard answer was when we move. So I was very much looking forward to moving. You always strike me as not really a, the city type. I remember you're saying you were just sort of blown away by the nature that was available to you when you moved out. Yes. In those days, what is now a lot of office buildings in an industrial park, those were woods. And I could reach them with my bicycle. And then when I was about 14, I realized I could reach saltwater with my bicycle, thanks to a friend of mine who is still a very good friend and fishing buddy of mine. So yeah, we saw some real nature and had some real adventures and went camping in the woods and bicycling to the shore, cooking our catch in campfires. We managed to have real kid adventures in a place where if you just drive through, you wouldn't think there was anything much for kids. Can you tell me about the first striped bass you ever caught? Yes, that was one of the great thrills of my entire life. It was in the fall of 1970. And we used to fish at a place on Long Island Sound, and we would walk out on this rocky jetty. And over the course of the summer, we got to be really quite good. We sort of knew what to do by the time the fall run came around because we had caught some bluefish and some mackerel earlier in the summer. Our main innovation was getting up earlier and earlier. So I would meet my friend in the dead middle of the night with our bicycle. We would go about 12 miles to this place through the dark, and we would start casting about an hour before dawn. And we're casting in the dark, and suddenly I get a really fierce strike from a fish that came to the surface in the blackness. We could hear it thrashing around and then sort of seeing these like walls of water it was throwing back and forth as it was trying to shake free of the lure. And after a fairly short fight, my friend John went down on the rocks on his belly and reached down with the gaff. And he said, it's a bass. And I mean, you know, to tell this sounds a little silly, but I mean, it was very, very thrilling, literally thrilling. And there it was. And it was just under 10 pounds. I got it mounted and it remains in my writing studio to this day. 
to me, it doesn't sound silly at all. I mean, I can remember the first sight of a striped bass that I caught, and I don't know, that sort of pinkish, lilacish iridescence, it really stays fixed in my memory as something really special. Yeah, and one of the things about fishing a lot is that you stop looking at the fish carefully. But when you're a kid and, and you have these firsts, some of these impressions, the colors, the patterns, the scale textures, they get really burned into your mind. I think that's very important. I think it was really important that we were unsupervised by adults because we really owned it. You know, We weren't just taken out on somebody's boat which my uncles took me out on their boat, but this was super special. It is very, very intimate. I mean, it sounds cheeseball, but it is very much like a coming-of-age kind of moment. So let's talk a little bit about those times. I have a memory of your telling me that in those days, before you became a well-established and internationally known conservationist, that you could have seen yourself going down the road of these Long Island East End guys, just fishing, maybe selling a few fish, you know, getting by rather than going into this sort of conservation direction. Am I, am I remembering that correctly? Let me put it this way. I wanted fairly desperately to have a life in nature. And there's a fork in that road. My friend who went down one fork, he had a book called Making a Living Along Shore. It was a book where you would viably do all this stuff and make a good living a few decades before things started to change. And we realized that there was a lot of overfishing and pollution and loss of habitat from all the development and everything. But before that happened, let's say in the early half of the 20th century, you could make a living with some fish traps some rod and reels, catching some lobsters and doing a little of this and a little of that as, as all the seasons changed. And that was hugely appealing to me because it was a way of making a living in nature. And then the, if you take the other fork, you need a formal education and you need to become then something like an ecologist or a wildlife manager. I became an ecologist. And John went into fishing. Now, John, his life in nature was full-time every day. And mine was episodic, although my forays became deeper and much more far-flung and more intense, but then punctuated by lots of time when I was in my office and going to meetings. So in, in some ways, I always envied him. In some ways, he probably would have liked to see some of the places that I was lucky enough to see around the world. So there's another fork, I think, also around that same time. When you first came up in the fishing world, there were commercial fishermen and then there were recreational fishermen, but there was kind of a little bit of a blurring between the two, right? I mean, you could recreationally fish, but you could still sell your fish. I sold a lot of fish. And many years later, I was one of the people who basically made it illegal for recreational fishermen here to sell fish, unless they had a commercial fish license, because everybody would just catch a lot more than they wanted and needed and they'd walk them into restaurants. And that was not good for the fish, but it also was a lot of competition for people trying to make a living. You know, I had been on one side of that, and I decided that was not a good thing. I was not only instrumental, but I, if I recall correctly, it was initially my idea to have a commercial fish selling license that would prevent purely recreational people from doing that legally. So going back to those times, early 70s, let's say, 
When did you first, as a fisherman, start noticing a problem with striped bass? Well, I think I grew up in the problem, and I thought that was the way it was supposed to be. Striped bass were rare. I mean, that's one of the reasons that it took us until the fall run to catch our first one after fishing all summer in the same place. People were very secretive about it. I remember once I saw a guy come ashore in a 12-foot aluminum boat. I was a teenager. I'm standing there on the beach surf casting, and he had a four-pound striped bass, which in those days we called a nice fish and now is way, way, way under the legal size. I said, oh, nice fish. Where'd you get it? And he looked at me and said, I'm not telling you. <laughs> you know, and it was a very secret kind of thing. Then we got good at catching them and saw them really disappear. Places where we knew what to do, we knew where to go, like live eels, middle of the night, full moon, October, very, very reliable kinds of techniques that stopped working. And people saying, there are no striped bass anymore. I went to this marina where we used to launch our boat to fish all night for, for bass. And I said to the owner, where is everybody? It's the full moon of October here. Where is everybody? He said, oh, nobody fishes for striped bass anymore. That was in the mid 80s. And then they closed it totally for, I think, one year. And then they put these very draconian restrictions on with a high and increasing minimum size that was designed to let this one decent year class of fish mature so that they could lay eggs. And the bag limit went from 16 inches unlimited number to 24 four and then 28 the next year and the, and the limit was one and it has been one since and the, the size crept all the way up to 38 inches which is well over 20 pounds as the minimum but that worked spectacularly what was happening in the 70s and 80s that necessitated these draconian restrictions simply tremendous overfishing so not pollution pollution was part of it but was it primarily overfishing in your opinion it was primarily overfishing that was proven by the fact that stopping the overfishing made them recover. And at the time, people argued, as they always do, about what is the cause of the decline, the mysterious cause of this decline. So in those days, they blamed pollution that was also causing some loss of eelgrass at the time, which has gotten much, much worse. There was even a theory that aluminum in the water, I forget how aluminum was supposedly getting in the water in some of their major spawning rivers in the Chesapeake system. Some people were blaming those things and saying, oh, it can't be overfishing. It has to be this pollution. It has to be the habitat loss. Obviously, those things were not good, but were they the deciding factor? Well, the only thing you really could manipulate easily of those was fishing, and that's what they did. And immediately you could see that every time they moved the minimum size up, what you mostly caught were fish just below the minimum size because there, the fishing pressure was so intense, and this is still true today, really. The, the fishing pressure on a lot of species is so intense that you get a lot of fish just under the minimum, and then places get cleaned out. We have a fish called the black sea bass. Early last summer, you know, the fishing was absolutely tremendous for a couple of weeks. Then everybody got on them. 
we're talking about dozens of boats a day, including various commercial recreational boats. We call them party boats, boats that take maybe 70 people out, and they're drifting over the same area every day for hours, and they clean places out. And then, you know, it's terrific one week, and the next week you can hardly find a legal fish, but there are a lot of fish right under the minimum size. So that was what we saw with striped bass. And then they kept increasing the minimum size to protect these fish as they matured. And they just came right up to the line. And then finally, there were a lot of mature fish, but not big ones for a long time. There were really no big ones. And then finally, a lot of them sort of aged through that and into it. And in the last good while now, I would say maybe 15 years or so, we have had a lot of quite large striped bass, which is a lot of fish between 35 and over 40 pounds. What is the success that you witnessed with striped bass recovery? I mean, it went from a marina owner saying nobody fishes for striped bass anymore to you could bring people out who've never been fishing a day in their life ever before. This has happened to me on my boat more than once. And they catch a 42-pound striped bass, and they think fishing is a lot of fun after that, right? Yeah. But that's a big change, and that, that change took about 20 years of watching this one good year class of small striped bass get bigger and bigger. And finally, you know, they started to spawn better year classes that also got bigger and bigger, and watching it all fill in like that. It was very obvious because we totally lived it, and it it greatly affected how successful we were and how easy it was to be very successful. You know, so much that we experience when we study nature and spend time in nature is about decline, but it strikes me that striped bass is this kind of miraculous thing in which, for once, it went in the opposite direction. It was the first fish to go in that direction. Then over the last 20 years, they unraveled those restrictions to the extent that they ruined it again. And now we have new draconian restrictions, which are the first restrictions that I resent. I've always been very, very supportive, but because they continued to ruin it with a lot of people yelling that they were ruining it, And to fail to learn from your mistakes is unwise, but to fail to learn from your success takes true stupidity. And they were truly stupid. Last year, partly as a consequence of them wrecking the recovery, they decided that they had to protect the really big ones. So it became illegal to keep fish that are much over 20 pounds And thousands of those fish that were caught had to be released, and they are really abundant right now, right here. And when I say right here, I am parked in a place that's very famous for the really big ones. The the habitat here is exactly what they really like. Big water with really fast-moving tide and these submerged glacial boulder fields place of a a lot of power and these fish are big and powerful and that's what they like. So a lot of people come out here to target the really big ones. And and right now there are really a lot of really big ones around because nobody can keep them. 
that's what they call a slot limit, right? Like, so you can keep everything under, what is it, 28? And then you have to throw back everything that's over 36 inches? You can keep between 28 and 36, right? Right. So that's the slot. My sense was that that first collapse was really driven by the commercial sector, by commercial fishermen. Is that your sense as well? Well, I think there was just a lot of overfishing by everybody. A lot of recreational fishermen got into this thing where, oh, we have to make money to cover our expenses. A lot of recreational fishermen sold as many fish as they could. And as I mentioned, there was no number limit on striped bass. I went out with John one day when I was in my late 20s, and our target of the day was to fill a 150-gallon cooler with striped bass that were somewhere over the legal limit of 16 inches. A lot of them were not much over that. And it would have taken probably more than 100 fish to fill that cooler. And that's what we were trying to do so that we could sell them and make money. Now, he was by then a commercial fisherman. I wasn't. And I remember feeling kind of sick that day. Like, this is, it's too much. I'm not really justified doing this. It's excessive. But a lot of people did that. I know that feeling of feeling sick about catching too much. And yet, in that moment, when the fish are running and they're biting, it's very, very hard, I've found anyway, to stop myself. Have you experienced that as well? And what do you make of it? Well, it's exciting. You can only do it if you're in the midst of abundance at the moment. You feel like you know what you're doing. You have the skill. It's a good feeling. You're thinking about money. And then the whole thing gathers some momentum where it is hard to just stop in the middle of a lot of action and just say the word that I always say is the most valuable word in our language, which is enough. But there's a line in Moby Dick that always popped out at me for this reason, where Starbuck says that everybody has to get back to the ship. I think they got news of Moby Dick somewhere. And, and so Ahab tells everybody, bring all the boats in. We have to go where they said they saw Moby Dick. So Starbuck orders all the boats back. And then one of the guys on one of the boats, he's incredulous because they're out there killing whales. And he says, it's hard to stop killing when you've been killing. It jumped out at me because, <laughs> yeah, I actually know that feeling in fishing. Before I introduce our next guest, here's a quick word from our sponsor. Experience the real-life struggles of small-scale fishermen in the new documentary, Last Man Fishing. Narrated by best-selling author Mark Bittman, the film explores the growing tensions between corporate interests and small-scale fishermen. Featuring conservationist Carl Safina and author Paul Greenberg, Last Man Fishing calls to question the ethics of the seafood industry and its impact on fishermen and the ocean. Watch it now on iTunes, Apple TV, or YouTube. Learn more at lastmanfishing.com. Things are never stable in fisheries, though. There are ups and downs, and different people step up to play the role of the bad guy in overfishing. In the past, it was very much the commercial guys. Today, though, as Sean Barrett from the community-supported fishery Dock to Dish points out, the people doing most of the killing are the sport guys, even when they're not trying to kill. 
Hey, my name is Sean Barrett, and I'm a co-founder of Dock to Dish, which is the community-supported fishery program of New York, headquartered in Montauk. We are also credited with starting restaurant-supported fisheries a number of years ago, which kind of took off like wildfire across the country. So that's my claim to fame. We're talking about striped bass today. Why do people like striped bass so much? As far as food, striped bass is like the dream fish, a big, long fillet of white, thick, clean fish that just isn't too fishy. And the word bass doesn't scare people away. It takes very well to different preparations, baked, broiled. So it's just become a ubiquitous dinner item for a lot of Americans and a favorite for sure. So what's a nice piece of striped bass going to run me in a fish market? If you're talking about the historical wild striped bass on the eastern seaboard, you're looking per pound at around like $24.95, $25.95 a pound for a one-pound filet of of wild-caught striped bass. Wow, that's, that's a pricey fish. It's expensive, Papa. You know what? We often use the adage, they'll say like, good fish is not cheap and cheap fish is not good. So you can certainly find less expensive fish out there, but buyer beware. So why do anglers, sport fishermen, why do they go bananas over striped bass? Striped bass is a muscular, beautiful, powerful fish that is the state fish of New York. It has an aesthetic appeal. It hits all types of different areas in the water column. It has a broad diet. So you'll see guys using fly fishing for it. You'll see all different types of lures, chunk baits. You can't really point to one specific item why it's the favorite. It's kind of the cumulative effect of a number of different assets. And just to clarify, the striped bass does have stripes. Definitively, yes. A striped bass has stripes. One surefire way to know a striped bass is look for the stripes. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I sometimes feel like it has a certain kind of Wall Street appeal. It's sort of, I don't know, it sort of goes with the pinstripe suit, like the pinstripe suit guys go out and catch the striped bass and they're sort of all in the same club. Yeah, it's it's also the fly fishing sector, which is a, typically a very kind of popped collar, IZOD wearing, Wall Streety type, you know, for the most part. And that is the favorite saltwater fish because not that many different species of fish will hit a fly. In New York, other than a striped bass, which makes it conducive to the Wall Street characters and just that whole aesthetic, basically. All right. So you got this Wall Street fancy fish. You got Wall Street fancy people catching this fancy fish. You got this fancy fish on the ice selling for 25 bucks a pound. Where's the common guy in all of this? Is this a fish that's been entirely sort of privatized for the 1%? Exactly, Paul. And I feel like there is a very strong push from the recreational sector right now to make striped bass just a straight sport fish. No commercial fishing at all. Yeah, no commercial fishing at all. That already exists. New Jersey as a state has banned commercial fishing for striped bass. It's it's recreational only. And there's a very large lobbyist in the recreational sector who are pushing, you know, save striped bass. But the reality is this, Paul, like if you look at the amount of recreational bass that's taken every year, there's hundreds of thousands of recreational fishermen and, you know, a fraction of that commercial fisheries. They have this staggering statistic where if you look at the catch and release in the recreational sector, they say about 10% of the fish that get caught and released by the recreational for sport 
guys who are just going out to catch fish for fun or sport, that about one of 10 of those bass dies, that the mortality rate, they're just going to float up on the beach and be dead, whether they got gut hooked or just exhausted from the fight. Just that represents more mortality and death than the entire commercial fishery combined. So just the mortality rate for the catch and release in the recreational. So when you get into the numbers here, it is kind of a, a crazy situation. In other words, recreational wasting is bigger than commercial fishing. Exactly. The mortality, the catch and release, fish that die from the recreational fishery, that's larger than the entire landings of the commercial fishery for striped bass. What if we talk about total landings? What is the percentage of landings, including the recreational guys who take a fish or two home versus the total commercial landings? What are we talking about there? So if you look at the stats, the overall quota that's given to New York State for striped bass, I would say about 10 or 11% of that is commercial, maybe, and the other 89% is recreational. And if you go to our next door neighbor, New Jersey, 100% is recreational, 0% is commercial. And that's where the New York recreational, (laughs) if you can believe it, they're trying to take the remaining 10 or 11% that's commercial fishery away from the New York commercial fishermen, which is like, we already have scant next to nothing quota being allocated to the commercial fishery. So when you get into the stats, Paul, that's where we have these arguments. They kind of stop right there when the recreational fishery looks at these numbers and goes, oh my goodness. And there's all little nuance and idiosyncrasies in there too. For example, commercial striped bass is done in a tag system. So every single bass, every fisherman is given a certain amount of tags and every bass that's caught in the correct slot size that's landed, they have to tag it in a lip and that tag has to move with the fish to the end plate, wherever it goes. The recreational fishery is largely the honor system. Like there's no tags. The way that they do reporting is kind of like they put phone calls into people or ask them at the dock, how many bass do you think you caught and released today? So it's a very anemic kind of unsure science. Well, theoretically, I mean, as far as I understand, right, I think the limit is one fish per person per day if you're fishing recreationally, but you could conceivably go fishing every single day of the striped bass season legally. And let's say there are, you know, 150 days in the recreational striped bass season, you could potentially, a single person could kill 150 bass in a year without any problem, right? Correct, Paul. And now times that by 175,000 recreational striped bass fishermen versus the 516 commercial striped bass tag holders in New York State. It's like orders of magnitude. It's not even remotely close, the amount of fatality and mortality. Who's really pushing striped bass into, it's right now considered overfished, and we're in a space where you're probably going to see adjustments to that one fish per man situation and certainly less commercial tags, which is shocking to think about. Well, you know, I always wondered with striped bass why they don't do what they do in Alaska. Like in Alaska, if you want to go salmon fishing as a recreational angler, you're given a certain number of stamps on your license of the number of salmon that you are allowed to catch for the whole season. And you can't go over that. There's no such thing for striped bass for recreational fishermen. Yeah, you can fish every single day. And I think I agree with you that there's certainly much better ways to manage striped bass. I had this conversation with our friend Carl Safina about the striped bass in the era of Instagram. 
and how I'll give you an example if you and i took a, a photo together of our handsome mugs and posted it on instagram we probably would get around 20 likes if you and i took that same photo we were both holding a montauk sea bream or a porgy or a black sea bass we'd probably get around 40 or 50 likes if you and i took that same exact photo and we were holding a 50 pound striped bass between us in that photo that instagram post would get about 395 likes I also think when you pull a fish out of the water like that and do the Instagram pose and maybe take it again, do one more, that fish has been beat up from the fight, especially if you're fly fishing rods, very light gear. They, a lot of these fishermen like to fight the fish. for The fish certainly does not like that, and it exhausts the fish. So a 15-minute fight may feel exhilarating and thrilling to the fisherman on a light little fly rod, but to the fish and lactic acid buildup in their muscles, which is what exhausts them and kills them, that's terrible. And then you'll see, you know, taking the fish up out of the water, often holding it incorrectly, all these subtle things that lead to that statistically that fish is, is in danger of dying, even the catch and release. So I'm also pushing a lot of our guys to say, what would it look like if you can't pull the fish up out of the water? We're doing a number of other things like circle hooks are being put implemented right now. But I feel like we're not really catching up to the digital age and especially this Instagram boom where, I mean, check it out. Go on to Instagram and put in hashtag striped bass and you'll see an explosion, a tsunami wave of little 10 inch long striped bass. Every bass you can imagine is getting taken out of the water, held up for photos. And a fish out of water is like you being submerged underwater. So think of a fish pulled you off the boat and was holding you underwater while it took a few extra minutes for its photos, you know. I think that's probably the least spoken about, but one of the most impactful developments in the last five to 10 years is this Instagram boom of who can get the most likes with their striped bass photos. Instagram photos. I've certainly posted a few in my day, but is this really the best use of a fish, even if in the end you let it go? To go a little deeper into this question, I turn to Jonathan Balcom, an ethologist and author of the 2016 bestseller, What a Fish Knows. I'm Jonathan Balcom. I'm an ethologist, which is a biologist who specializes in the study of animal behavior. And I'm the author of What a Fish Knows, The Inner Lives of Our Underwater Cousins. So obviously fish encompass a very broad range of animals, but in terms of the spectrum of fish that have been observed... Where would you rate their kind of sensitivity with respect to, say, dogs and cats and things that are most frequently in humans' lives? Where would you place the more advanced fish in that sort of universe? My own conclusion from five years of delving into the published literature on the lives of fishes is that I regard them as full equals of the other groups of vertebrates. They're really underestimated partly because they're just out of our view, and it's only recently we've been able to properly observe them in their own realms. But there's some really excellent science, a huge accumulation of really interesting science about their social lives, their cognitive abilities, their emotions even. And within a species, including humans, you find a great range of cognitive and emotional capacities, certainly between species and across species, then there's a broad range. And so the range of capacities from tool use to referential communication to individual recognition, I mean, the list is a long list. Collectively, I, I conclude that fishes are full equals of vertebrates and that they're just as deserving of our concern and protection as any other group of vertebrate animals. Okay, so let's dive right in here. When you hear anglers describe an encounter with a quote-unquote game fish, 
they talk about the fight. They talk about the noble struggle. It's very much portrayed almost like a wrestling match of equals. But from the very moment that a fish spots a lure through its catching to its release, could you describe that whole narrative from a fish's perspective? Sure. You know, what we just, what a fisherman may describe as a noble struggle, I would say for the fish is an earnest struggle. If the fisherman loses, the fish gets away, say. If the fish loses, then it's his or her life, most likely, or certainly very often. So there's nothing noble about it from the fish's perspective. And uh, when I think about the experience from the fish's perspective, it's pretty wholly un unpleasant you know, being hooked through the mouth. Fish's mouths tend to be well innervated and sensitive so that they can manipulate prey and the like. And then being dragged through the water against your will and struggling against the, the, the tug of this line, which has got to be a very alien and scary experience for a fish who's never had that happen before. And I use the word scary in a measured manner because uh, that presumes emotions. But what science we have on fish emotions is, well, certainly that fear is a very old emotion that's been around for a long time. I think it's very reasonable to assume that a modern day fish has the, the emotion of fear. And then being brought to the boat side, some species in some studies uh, have suggested that quite a high percentage are already dead before they reach the boat side because of exhaustion and stress. And there's certainly a number of published studies on, on stress and how you can measure stress in, in a fish. And then handling, you know, if the fish is still alive, then the handling, the removal of the hook, hopefully from the fish's perspective, a barbless hook, but I think more often it's a hook that doesn't come out easily. There's often injuries, injuries to the eye are surprisingly common. And then the fish often loses some of that precious mucus outer layer, a very protective layer on the outside of the scales through the handling, which can often be rough if the fishermen want to take pictures, for instance. So by the time the fish is released back in the water, hopefully still alive and able to survive, it's been a pretty unpleasant and rough experience, I would think, from the fish's perspective. So you're an ethologist. I wonder if when you look at the moral implications around fishing, if you place a moral hierarchy between the catch and release fisherman and the fisherman who's fishing for food. Do you see a moral difference between those two or are they just all bad? Certainly a moral difference. I mean, from the fish's perspective, it, it may make no, no difference. Uh, the only difference would be the, the method of capture and the situation. I mean, it's probably worse to be caught in a in a net with 100,000 other fish and then hauled up onto a boat deck than it is to be caught on a hook even. But you know, context is relevant here. I mean, if it's a subsistence fishing situation where you have coastal communities that have sustainably fished for certainly centuries and probably millennia, and they're simply taking what they need to feed themselves, that's not something that's high on my list of priorities to try and address ethically. But when it's fishing for profit, commercial fishing, then my concern from an ethical standpoint is is much greater. Because? Because it's huge numbers. I mean, just from an ecological standpoint, the numbers of fishes that are taken now with the technologies that we have, helicopters and, and devices that we can detect the presence of fish below the surface, the methods of capture, the persanes, the deep sea trawlers, all of them are, are ecologically harmful, arguably, certainly deep sea trawling is, and then they take such huge numbers. The limits on how many fish we catch is not is not how hard we work to catch them. It's how many fish are left to be caught. I mean, the numbers have gone down already over the preceding decades, and there's the illusion that there's still enough there. And 
Certainly some populations have so far managed to weather the pressure that we've put on them, but a lot of fish populations have declined considerably. So there's certainly an ecological concern there that distinguishes, for me, wholesale commercial fishing from subsistence fishing among coastal peoples to meet their nutritional needs. And then you have catch and release fishing. Where does that stand in relation to those other two? My own personal sense of ethics is quite skeptical of the defensibility of an activity that is really by definition uh, gratuitous in the sense that this is not a need that's being met. Causing harm to another animal is all the more dubious if and when it doesn't need to be done. There's no compelling reason for that activity to be taking place, which I think is kind of assumed if it's catch and release. It was too late to throw back the striped bass I'd caught in Queens. It was too late to call the fishing trip off altogether. The best I could do was to make sure that this fish gave us all it could give. Knowing what I know now about striped bass, I circled back with Chef Dave Pasternak and Nick to see how we could honor this fish by eating all of it, even the head. All right, so we've got the striped bass. They're stewing away. So yeah, you're going to move it around a little bit. Now you're going to add your squash and your fennel. Okay, so... I have a fennel bulb and I have a large green squash. Are we talking all of both? Take the seeds out of the squash. And can I, and I ask a question about this fennel bulb. Do you usually remove the core? Yes. Interesting. I hear you're scraping very loud there, uh, Nick. Oh, I'm, tr- <laughs> I'm trying to know. I'm uncutting my fennel. After you add the squash and the fennel, you're going to add salt and pepper. And then we're going to taste it. We're going to make sure it tastes good. More salt and pepper. Okay. Because I guess you want to sort of layer in the salt and pepper. Absolutely. What's the size of the fennel? Am I sort of shaving this fennel? Like, what am I doing exactly? I would do the same thickness. You'd slice an apple for an apple tart. Okay. And we're trimming off the fronds, right? No, you could leave the fronds on. That'd give good flavor. You just don't want to use that stem. That stem could be a little woody sometimes. Right. All right. I'm going to throw in my fennel. And the squash, we want like kind of a dice, Yeah. Yeah, you can either do half moons or dice, either way. It's funny, you know, I have dinner plans out with friends tonight, but I'm thinking maybe I should just have them come in. So I put in my vegetables. Should I cover the pot again? Put the cover back on. We're just going to cook that stuff till it's all tender. And then at that particular point, we're going to add our parsley leaves. We're going to taste it, make sure it tastes good. We're going to get some crusty bread, and we're going to eat. <laughs> I, like, I like your style. So in a way... This is sort of like a stockless fish stew in the sense that we're making our own stock as we're making this dish. Absolutely. Everything's everything's in one pot. That would be very European. Yeah. Grandma doesn't make stock and then do this, do that. No. Right? Exactly. (laughs) All right. This is is smelling and looking really good. So how long do we think we're going to need to do this? I would say just need a couple minutes. The squash cooks quickly. True. Okay. And Dave, how does this dish keep? Because I'm realizing it's a pretty big pot of stuff I got going on here. Could I serve this for the next few days, you think? It'd be better tomorrow. Oh, good. Maybe I'll serve it tomorrow. So I think our food should be ready, right, Dave? I think you guys definitely got to be ready. All right. Let's try this then. So how would you recommend I serve this? This is how I would eat it. I would put a little bit of the broth in a bowl and then pick a little bit of meat off the head. And then eat it like that. If you want to drizzle a little bit of extra virgin olive oil on top of it, it would be good. And that's the story. I got myself a nice bowl. And and I should have like a little bit of fennel, a little bit of zucchini, right? A little bit of everything, yep. Some of the broth, some of the fennel, some of the zucchini. Now, 
on the crusty bread, is there a particular kind of crusty bread that you favor for this? Like a filoni or Toscana. I have a really wonderful baguette from a local bakery here in Missoula. I think I have a Toscana is what I got on my hands here. All right. You know what, Nick? I'm gonna, let's do this separately. I'm going to do my taste test now. So I'm going to give it a taste. Mmm. That is really very, very, very good. Mmm. You know, I've made similar things before. Just goes to show you, it's really nice to have a pro walking you through the steps because I feel there's a lot more layering and subtlety to what we've done here. I have to admit, I got a bone just now, which I don't mind, but a lot of Americans are just deathly afraid of, of fish bones. Oh, it doesn't bother me. I mean, I think it's more of what you grew up eating. We eat whole fish all the time, so to me, it's normal. But Americans are definitely fearful of it, a lot of them. It's kind of a shame, right? Because I feel like they're missing out on so much flavor. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm just starting to dig into my fish right now. And the meat around the head and the meat in the cheeks is always, it has a certain type of unctuousness that you're just not going to get from a, uh, a filet. It's very rich. Mm, mm. Oh, that's great. Well, that's delicious, Dave. Where'd you learn to cook this? To me, this is basic cooking. This is what we grew up eating. Yeah. I think if more Americans had a chance to taste this, they would never throw out a fish head ever again. Looking back, sort of zooming out for the whole episode, I mean, what do you think? You know, a lot of people out there are saying that striped bass should be a sport fish, catch and release fish only. What do you think, Dave? I don't agree with that at all. I think that to me, you go out and you catch something and you do it respectfully and you do it, you know, with purpose, you should be able to eat it. So that's the whole striped bass story from head to tail. I hope the next time you eat a fish or go fishing, you'll consider the whole fish in the same way. Consider that fish's sacrifice and its value, and think twice before you fish for fun. Remember, even though they might call it a game fish, for that fish, fishing is no game. Nick here with your Fish Talk Fish Tip. One of my favorite ways to get a crispy sear on a piece of fish is to give the fish's flesh a few brushes of softened butter before searing. The butter will congeal to the cool fish and act as a conduit for the heat as it hits the hot pan. This is one of my favorite tricks to create restaurant quality fish at home. How much do you know about the last fish you ate? Sitka Salmon Shares delivers responsibly sourced wild Alaska seafood to your doorstep. As a member, you'll receive a monthly share of delectable seafood, including favorites like halibut and coho salmon. And you'll be connected to the story behind your fish. Sitka Salmon Shares model ensures superior quality fish and traceability to the source, from the ocean to your plate. Meet your fishermen, browse recipes, and shop wild-caught Alaska seafood at SitkaSalmonShares.com. Guaranteed this wild fish will be the best you've ever cooked at home, or your money back.